Hey, this is The Mouth Off with Kion Wolf, storytelling from the Mark Twain house. I'm Kion Wolf. Our first story in this episode is from Rand Richards Cooper. He's the author of The Last to Go and Big as Life. His writings appeared in Harper's, GQ, Esquire, The Atlantic, Bon Appetit, The New York Times, and Hartford Magazine. His story is from our June 2014 show, and the theme was The Fame and the Famish, Brushes with Celebrity. In college, I was fraternity brothers with a prince. He's currently the uh, prince of the Principality of Monaco. Back then, he was the sole heir to the throne. His full name was and is Albert Alexandre Louis Pierre Grimaldi. But we just called him Al. <laughs> Albert Grimaldi. He was, uh, he was a very actually shy guy, you know, for a prince. Not that I had a lot of comparison. And uh, we didn't spend, you know, college is a very democratic environment, so we didn't spend a lot of time thinking about how unusual it was to have a prince in our midst. But every now and then, something would happen that would remind us who he was. Like there were letters that came to the frat addressed to His Serene Highness. (laughs) There was the time someone called sneakily from the National Enquirer and basically surreptitiously offered any of us a thousand bucks if we could pony up some compromising party photo, you know, of an animal house variety that included Albert. No one took them up on the deal. And then there was the issue of Bruno. Now, Bruno was a mysterious character who showed up whenever Albert had a little daily problem. Let's say he had, he had a little fender bender in the parking lot. Suddenly, there was Bruno. He was like a 45-year-old guy, you know. He showed up from God knew where, and he would deal with the insurance company, he would oversee the repair of the car, and as soon as the problem was taken care of, he was gone, vanished. So Albert was literally the only kid at Amherst College who had his own personal full-time fixer. (laughs) It's parents' day at the college, and, you know, your folks come up to see where you live. Albert told us that his mom and sister were coming. Now, luck would, as luck would have it, Albert, the next semester, was going to have the room in the fraternity that I currently had. And he asked if I and my two sweetmates, it was a triple, would show his mom and his sister the rooms. You know, that, that's fine. But keep in mind that his mom was Grace Kelly. <laughs> and even more important to me at the time, his sister was, the older one, was Princess Caroline. Her serene hotness. At that time in her life, Princess Caroline was spending most of her time cavorting around, you know, skiing and swimming and wearing very skimpy bathing suits and dating, uh, you know, Italian race car drivers. So I was very hopeful of somehow garnering out of all this at least a brief private audience with her serene hotness. Unfortunately, every other guy in the fraternity had, of course, exactly the same plan. So I'm standing at the corner of this big party room, it's called the Great Hall in the fraternity, and I'm, and I'm seeing over there, Princess Caroline's in the corner, and she's completely mobbed and surrounded, you know, by brothers. And I see there's just no way I'm going to get through this crowd, and I'm, I'm not going to get any face time with her. Well, at that moment, who should peel away from the group and head straight my way? Grace Kelly. Now, my roommates, I don't know where they were, they were out in the party somewhere, but Grace Kelly wanted to see the room. So, okay. I'm going to show Grace Kelly Albert's room for the next semester. Now, you need to know, 
that we had spent, Bruce and Curtis and I, it was a, it was a triple, as I said, we'd spent the last three days cleaning up the room. <laughs> because our room, you know, was a hideous hellhole. The typical frat stuff, I mean, piles of beer bottles, old greasy pizza boxes. On one wall, there had been, a few weeks earlier, an egg-throwing incident. And we hadn't done anything. So one wall, there were these yellow streaks of dried yolk, you know, with, with bits of eggshell encrusted in them. We had a fridge, an old fridge, had been there you know, for years, and stuff in it had been there for years. And it was so rancid inside, you know, that when you opened it, it was like the Okefenokee swamp. You know, this miasma, which just spread across the room. So, like, the way we, would, we dealt with that was, you'd open it, get a beer, shut it. <laughs> now, my room, my bedroom inside was even worse. I had built up this little mini loft. It was about this high, and I would throw all my dirty clothes underneath. And, you know, I would go through all my clothes, because I never really did a wash. And then I would start reselecting, you know, from the least squalid ones. And some moron in the frat had pulled a malicious joke on me. There had been a lobster bait a couple of weeks before. And so he'd taken a lobster, you know, cooked, and he'd stuffed it in, in the middle of my dirty clothes pile and then buried it under dirty clothes. And the, <laughs> the notorious thing was five days passed and I didn't even notice. <laughs> so I had this, like, fungating, reeking crustacean <laughs> buried in my room, and it didn't make any difference. So that gives you an idea of the scale of things we had to address when we cleaned up the room. And really, I mean, we spent two full days doing this. We did unimaginable things, you know, like vacuuming. <laughs> and uh, we scrubbed all the yolk off, and I felt pretty proud. And as I led Grace Kelly through the room, I, I thought, you know, she might notice that. She might notice how laboratory-like the client. She might say, you know, oh, you fellows run quite a, quite a tight ship here. Um, but she didn't. She was very nice. She was very gracious. She had this bearing, you know, this poise and this calm and cool, slightly imperious. I mean, you would say that her bearing was regal, really. And she went straight to the bedroom, I guess, to see Albert's room. That had been a single room, and we used these flimsy partitions to divide it. So we had three very tiny bedrooms. And she looked to her left, not to my room or Albert's future room, but my other roommate had a waterbed in his room. He was from L.A., to feel at home, he'd gotten this waterbed there, and these, these little cells were like six feet wide, and his waterbed literally took up 80% of his room. There was no room on either side. It was jammed against the wall. There was one little space at the front of the room with a closet at your back. It was like a launching pad for the waterbed. <laughs> Grace Kelly looked in. She said, is that, a, is that a, a waterbed? I said, yeah, it is. My roommate's from L.A., you know, as if that explained everything. <laughs> and she said, you know, actually, I've, I've never been on one. She spoke with that, you know, accent that American film actresses always used to have, like Catherine Hepburn, that sort of mid-half quasi-British thing. You know, I've never actually been on one. Um, might I? <laughs> you might. <laughs> so, so I stand there entranced and watch as Grace Kelly puts down her handbag, stands up with the waterbed to her back, lowers her regal rear end, onto the waterbed, and then backflips onto the bed, and then scooches herself up until she's totally on the bed. And then she starts doing this sort of... <laughs> wiggle thing. And I mean, waves are going back and forth. You can hear the water sloshing around. And then Grace Kelly starts to giggle. And I don't mean just one little chuckle, but I mean like a schoolgirl, 
giggling. She totally abandons herself. And I'm standing there frozen. And I'm thinking, my God, Grace Kelly is abandoning herself on my roommate's waterbed. <laughs> and it was a transporting moment. I mean, I wasn't Rand Cooper anymore. I was, I was Cary Grant. <laughs> I was Clark Gable. I was Gary Cooper. Do not forsake me, oh my darling, on this wedding day. I mean, I wanted that moment to last forever. Of course, it didn't. It lasted about 30 seconds. And then Grace Kelly got off the bed, picked up her handbag, and a strange thing happened. As soon as she was no longer on that waterbed doing this, that regal thing came back, and she became once again proper but coolly imperious. I led her back out through the room, the outer room, and to the door, and she stopped at the door and looked back into the room, and, and she said to me, thank you, that was truly unique. I said, you're welcome. And she looked back into the room as if seeing it for the first time, and she said, you know, you really should get a health inspector in here. <laughs> It's quite appalling. <laughs> and I was no longer Cary Grant or Clark Gable or even Gary Cooper, but for one malevolent little moment, I was Ray Milland. Thank you. Thanks to Rand Richards Cooper, who lives in Hartford with his wife Molly and his daughter Larkin. Next up is Becky Beth Benedict. Becky Beth is a farmer's daughter and theater teacher, originally from North Dakota. Her story is from the September 2013 show, and the theme was Luck and Serendipity. My mom, born and raised, grew up in North Dakota, middle of nowhere, for those of you who aren't from the United States. Conservative, religious, modest. So she had the, um, the fortune of actually getting a job at a corporate travel agency in Linton, North Dakota, which is a population of about 1,400 people, so corporate travel agencies don't exactly grow in fields in North Dakota. A uh, man named Hal Rosenbluth out of Philadelphia had heard about the drought in the middle of the 80s, which was the heyday of my youth, when things were really tough out there. And what he did to help out was he started a travel agency to employ farmers' wives, which is very sexist, but farmers' spouses, and help out with the economy there. It turned out to be his most profitable office, great work ethic, and so she had a nice little career budding there. At one point, they did an appreciation day where an airline donated two plane tickets to anywhere in Europe, and my mom won these. Now, the response with her family and friends back there is different than if somebody in this room won plane tickets to Europe, because we'd all be like, woo, yeah, right? They were like, huh. What would you do with that? <laughs> you know, if you want it, like in the United States, you could fly to Denver. And I'm thinking, you could drive to Denver. So my mom called me and was, you know, bemoaning her luck. And I'm like, Mom, I will go with you. And she was, A, first shocked that I'd be willing to travel with my mother in public, and B, concerned that we did not speak many languages. In fact, just one. So I told her, pick a country, I will learn the language. No problem, I can handle this. So she picked England. 
Yeah, I almost mastered that language. So we set off on, I believe it was only five days, but it seems like 50 days that we spent in England. First day of traveling, we're a little wound up. You know, planes late, Heathrow hell. Uh, The hotels are nothing like hotels in the U.S., You know, your room isn't ready, but you're tired, so you're trying to sleep in the lobby, balanced on your suitcase kind of crap. And um, we go to dinner that night, and I still need to unwind. So I order my first glass of wine, that's right, an alcoholic beverage, in front of my mother, who just about falls out of the seat. But she picks her chin up, closes her mouth, and says nothing. Big victory in my adult life. After that, I don't know if it was the next day or perhaps right after dinner, we were wandering down the street and I see a sex shop and I'm going to pop in and see what they've got there at the sex shop. (sighs) Remember, mom, religious conservative North Dakota. I was probably emboldened by the wine I had drank. My mother, though, was afraid to stay out in the street by herself because, you know, London's scary. She was also afraid to let me go into a sex store by myself. So I think there was also mixed in a last-ditch attempt to maybe save her marriage with some lingerie or something like that. So mom walks into the sex store with me, and we kind of just make a really quick lap, but I think she tries not to look at much while I'm like, eh, it was your run-of-mill, maybe less than run-of-the-mill sex shop. And that's, that was it. That was the whole sex shop thing for me. I'm, I'm good. And the next morning, I wake a little bit before the alarm, and I realize mom is not in her bed. Where is my mom? Where is my mom? And she is kneeling in the corner by the chair. And I'm like, Mom, are you okay? Like, like, is this a heart attack? Is this it? What's going on? She said, I just couldn't sleep all night long. I had to get up and pray for forgiveness for walking through that sex shop. (laughs) Yeah, I was over too with the adventures with mom. And we did all the normal traveler things, too. We went to the Parliament Building. We saw Big Ben, Buckingham Palace, the London Eye, Trafalgar Square, Kew Gardens. We did the Globe Theater, London Symphony Orchestra, all that stuff that you want to shove into that trip to London. And on the last day, the last full day before we flew out, we are doing a river cruise on the Thames. And we look up, and there is this bridge, a very modern-looking bridge with a lot of colorful flags on it. And we inquire about it. And they said, oh, that's the Millennium Bridge, because this was the year 2000. And, you know, it's built to commemorate the Millennium. Great, nice, cool. Snap a photo. We saw that. Last thing that we have to check off our list is to go to St. Paul's, which is incredibly important, and I don't know why, because my mom is Pentecostal and I'm like a non-believer, but it was really important that we go to St. Paul's. So we walk up to St. Paul's, and at every entrance, there is police officers blocking entry. I'm like, oh, this is not boding well. I wanted to shove one more thing into this trip. So I walk up to the police officer to say, you know, this is our last day here, blah, 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 American, blah, blah, blah. And the police officer says, look, ma'am, if you want to see the queen, you need to walk down here, go to the left of the bridge, and stand there with the rest of the people. I said, okay, got it, got it, got it. So we start to follow the route that the police officer had laid out for us. And about that time, the congregation from St. Paul's dismisses and begins to flood the street. So we have conservative British people dressed for church going, flooding the streets. And I look over at my mother, who is dressed in grape purple t-shirt with Mickey Mouse on it. 
a big baseball hat, hot pink with an extra wide brim, and I say, blend in. So we try and slip in with the congregation so we can be seated a little closer to where the queen is going to make her appearance. And it works. Somehow it works. And the queen indeed does come to the bridge in her little lavender suit with her lavender gloves and her lavender hat and her lavender pocketbook. And she says a few things and she does a little wave and we take pictures and there's fireworks and there's dancing. Like I could not have planned anything this good. It was totally serendipitous that we got to see the Queen when we went to London on our last day there. A um, few years later from that, I uh, saved up, took an extra job, and took my mom to Ireland. We are English, Scotch, and Irish, so she had such a great time in England, she wanted to go to all the countries from our heritage. And um, when we went to Ireland, she said, well, can't we go to Scotland too? And I said, yeah, next time. Next time we'll go to Scotland. And she kept bringing it up. And I said, Mom, if we go we won't be able to see all of Ireland. So, you know, she's like, well, no, I want to see all of that. And she kept, kept on it. And I said, Mom, do you want to tour Scotland or do you just want to say you've been? And she says, I just want to say I've been because I realize she's afraid there's no next time. So we took from Belfast, we took a ferry over Scotland. We had lunch, we saw a castle, checked it off the list and head back to Ireland. Uh, last month, I went home to visit Mom who has stage three of the three stages of multiple myeloma bone cancer. And all I can think of when I saw her was God save the queen. Thank you. Thanks, Becky Beth Benedict. As Mark Twain said, I like a good story well told. That's the reason I'm sometimes forced to tell them myself. The Mouth Off is hosted and produced by me, Kyone Wolf, with help from Jennifer LaRue. Learn about my other shows at KyoneWolf.com, on Twitter and Instagram at KyoneWolf, and on Facebook at KyoneWolf Productions. Tell your story at one of our live shows. Dates, themes, tickets, and swag are at MarkTwainHouse.org slash MouthOff. At that site, you'll also see all the other cool stuff Twain has going on, in addition to funny and fascinating house tours. Twain's tradition of storytelling continues with writing classes and workshops, chances to write in Mark Twain's library, and the very popular Mark My Words series, where authors from around the world come to talk about how current issues are colliding with their work. Follow the Mark Twain House and Museum on Facebook and sign up for their newsletter at marktwainhouse.org. Till next time, whatever happens, make it a good story. Bye.